God's Word. If, if you were here uh, two weeks ago, we started a series, or we've been going through a series in Genesis. And so we're still in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 26 through 31. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'd love if you'd follow along. If you don't, that's okay. It'll be on the screen behind me or one of the screens around the sanctuary. This is what God's Word says in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Let's continue to sing. Cultures everywhere have fallen in love. Over the past few years, we have fallen in love with one particular type of movie. The superhero movie. We have witnessed these billion-dollar busting box office hits roll out one after another. In 2016 alone, a total of eight major superhero movies came out. That's roughly one superhero movie every month and a half, with a full schedule already planned through the year 2020. So what draws us to a good superhero movie? There's a lot to it, but experts say that one key element is something called an origin story. An origin story provides the backstory behind how a certain character actually becomes a superhero. It's defined as a story that explains how a person became who he or she is. For example, as a bit of audience participation this morning, whose origin story involves having poor health and a weak build as a young man, but a courageous spirit and desire to fight for his country, so he enters an experimental project. That's right. Whose origin story involves deliberately ignoring a thief out of spite who later took his uncle's life and forever ingrained in him the motto, with great power comes great responsibility. Spider-Man, yes. Lastly, whose origin story involves being sent in a rocket as a child from a dying planet to land in Kansas where his new parents raised him with noble virtues, Midwestern virtues, and the yellow sun activated his powers. Superman, yes, that's right. You see, we know these stories because writers and filmmakers both realize that they are a key element. One scholar, a professor who who works at a college and actually wrote a book on all this, said this, 
origins are at the core of a superhero's existence. Or listen to this quote by someone else. A character's origin story is one of, if not the most important aspect of their entire being. So why are these so important? Because this is how we make sense of who they are. And here's the thing. Origin stories are not just for superheroes. We recall the definition. An origin story is a story that explains how a person became who he or she is. So regular people like you and I have real-life origin stories. Not fiction, but true. And they help us make sense of who we are and who others are. For example, part of my origin story is that I am from Iowa, which helps make sense of certain aspects of who I am and maybe why I never really became a super fan of any major league sports teams. Because Iowa doesn't have any. The people of Iowa were too busy supplying the whole nation with food to play any games. Or have you ever gotten to know someone and then later met one of their parents, like mom or dad, and then all of a sudden just everything makes sense, right? But our origin story is so much, it's about so much more than our quirks. It's about our whole backstory. And like the superheroes, it becomes one of the most important aspects of our entire being. So this sermon series is entitled Origins, because the first 11 chapters of Genesis lay the groundwork for the rest of Scripture and redemptive history. It's about the origins of our faith and our identity. It's about who God is and who we are in light of that. It's about our Maker and what we were made for. And this is important for us as a church because it's about dialing in to God's design for us from the very beginning. It's about reinforcing and renewing what we are committed to individually and collectively. Our passage today in particular speaks to our origins. It tells our origin story. Not fiction, but true. This is as far back as it goes. This is our ultimate backstory. And it helps us at the deepest level to make sense of who we are and who others are. Because did you know that with superheroes, there is a history of new writers coming in and trying to rewrite the original origin story of a certain character. It happens all the time. And the same is true for us. There are false stories being told all the time about who we are and who others are. So this passage reminds us of the truth of the original story with three simple affirmations. The first is found in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27. So please turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. We read, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. These verses lay out the first affirmation of this passage 
And that is this. We were created with great value. And I don't want this to come off like a superficial pep talk, like a positive spin on the scriptures. I, I want us to see that this is an unmistakable emphasis of this passage. We've got to know we were created with great value. How do we see this in these verses? I believe there's two main ways. Number one, in the way human beings are highlighted in this passage. Thus far in chapter 1, we have covered a lot of ground. The whole universe has been created by God, one thing after another, and it all moves at a very steady, rapid pace. Day 1, light and darkness. Day 2, the sky. Day 3, the dry land and seas, vegetations and trees. Day 4, sun and moon and stars. Day 5, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. Day 6, land animals and... And then at this point, everything slows down. It's like it zooms in and goes in slow motion to highlight that something significant and unique is happening here. And on top of that, it's like everything has been building up to this, anticipating this, preparing for this, awaiting for this. And once it's done, creation is complete. Human life is treated as the grand finale, the culmination of God's creative work. And on top of that, throughout this chapter, we've heard the impersonal expression, let there be, let there be, let there be. But then all of a sudden in verse 26, we hear a very personal expression, let us make. And just as a quick parenthesis, there's a a lot of debate about why the expression is plural, let us make. And one of the leading positions is that God is talking to angels here. But it's clear that angels didn't assist God in the making of human beings, nor are we created in the image of angels. And check this out. In verse 26, the expression is plural. Let us make. In verse 27, it's singular. Let he, singular, created. I believe the best explanation is that this is a faint hint that there is both plurality and singularity in God's nature. It's not a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity at this stage, but it sets the trajectory that will ultimately be filled as the timeline of Scripture progresses. End parenthesis. The, the words, let us make, are very personal, as opposed to let there be. And on top of that, we hear the word created repeated three times in verse 27. God created, He created, He created. It's like God's signature is all over this. It underlines that this is God's personal handiwork. The whole universe is God's personal handiwork. But there's something undeniably more personal about this final act of creation. It's like God is more involved. Isn't it crazy? The mountains, in all their grandeur, are not His special work. The earth, in all its wonder, is not His special work. The stars, in all their splendor, are not His special work. Human beings are His special work. This also stands in direct contrast with other creation accounts of this same time period. The popular ones that were surrounding the Israelite people. In those creation accounts, humans were created by the gods as sort of an afterthought. 
No, this passage makes clear human beings are the climax of creation, the uniquely personal and special work of God. We were given such dignity and value by our Creator. So first we see our great value in these verses in the way human beings are highlighted. And second, we see it in the way human beings are created. It says we were created in the image and likeness of God. This is something foundational to Scripture and foundational to our lives. It is not said of anything else in all of creation. So what does it mean to be created in God's own image and likeness? Throughout the centuries, scholars have tried to identify the image of God with various aspects of our being. From early on, many scholars identified it with humanity's ability to think logically or to reason related to that are intelligence. But of, of course scholars would say this because they are usually skilled with intelligence and reasoning. Others have said it actually has to do with our physical traits. But God is spirit. Others have added to the conversation certain aspects like our personality traits or our will, our, our ability to be motivated by higher virtues than just our instincts or impulses. There's also the ability to express ourselves in language and creativity. Still others have argued that it's our capacity for meaningful relationships. And you know, I think there's something to the majority of these insights. But the text itself does not isolate the image of God into any single aspect of our being. It simply states the truth that this is who we are. In other words, it simply states that to be human is to be made in the image of God. So I think it's best to see it as referring to our whole selves, the whole package. It's about all of who we are. And this makes sense to me. Because if the image of God is about our intelligence, then are those who are more intelligent more in the image of God? And those who are less intelligent less in the image of God? Or if it's about language and someone endures an accident so that their speech is impaired, are they all of a sudden less in the image of God? Or if it's about our ability to be motivated by higher virtues than just our impulses and instincts, are babies made in the image of God? Because there's not a lot of higher virtues going on there. Or to illustrate, Lisa says that Zoe inherited a sense of rhythm from me. We turn on the music... And she just bebops right on beats. So, does that mean that the more she has rhythm, the more she's my daughter? No, there's not one isolated aspect that makes her my daughter. She simply is. It's who she is. There's not one aspect that makes us in the image of God. It's not to be smart or to be creative is to be in the image of God. It's to be human is to be in the image of God. Why is this important? Because we could be stripped of every single capacity and still have the same intrinsic value and dignity. It's how God made us. And I want to draw out one implication of this on a personal level. Have, have you ever looked for something that you already have? Raise your hand if you've ever spent time looking for your cell phone only to realize that you were holding it the whole time. 
I read about a famous art enthusiast from the 1920s, William Randolph Hearst, who sent an assistant to find a rare piece of art only to discover that it was in his storage. He already owned it. Poor guy, he wasted all that time and energy. Many of us are looking for something to tell us that we have value. We are looking to a certain accomplishment or achievement or job or pay level or status or grades or gadgets or a relationship or affirmation to tell us we have value. But we don't have to spend our lives looking for something that we already have. God tells us our value. This passage reminds us that our value is not on trial. It's not on the line today based on our performance. It has already been declared of us. All of the other ways we find to assess ourselves fade, but God's words endure. Let them sink in. We can stop the search. We can call it off and rest. And I think it's also important to note that the text emphasizes that this value is equally true of both men and women, not one more than the other. Verse 27 actually goes out of the way to clarify male and female are created in the image of God. This sets the Bible apart from other creation accounts once again who hardly even mention the creation of women at all. This passage makes clear that men and women are endowed with equal value and dignity. We must make sure that our actions and words consistently line up with this. Especially men, because history and raw facts attest that the vast majority of the time we are the ones who have failed in this area. Men, when we disrespect a woman or women in general, in big ways or small ways, we are running ourselves counter to God's design. From the very beginning, God's design is that men and women are treated with equal value and dignity as mutual sharers in the image of God. I pray that we would make visible this powerful reality. And another implication here is that humankind is made in relationship. We are made in relationship with one another and with God. That's part of our origin story. It means that we are relational beings. Some might say, nah, I'm a loner. I don't need anyone. But none of us would be here right now without various forms of relationships in our lives. That's how humans are built. It's in our DNA. We were made to be in relationship with one another, and that means we need to be in one another's lives. And part of the way we're seeking to do that here is through small groups. Small group helps us connect with one another around God's Word and to go deep with one another. So if you haven't found a small group, there will be what's called a Mosaic Fair. That's our small groups in two weeks, as we announced. And I want to encourage you to pray about this opportunity, to take it seriously. And in two weeks, to come out after worship and see about getting and consider getting plugged into one of these groups. And if so many people sign up that we have to make more small groups, then great. We will make more small groups. I know that for most of us, it will be a sacrifice. We live in a society that is so saturated with things constantly going on that no matter what, 
it will always be a sacrifice. But it's worth the sacrifice. We need to get into one another's lives. That's how we were created. So far, we've seen that all human beings have value. But the question remains, how much value? And this is found in the words image and likeness and how they were used during this time. In other parts of the Old Testament and even in ancient writings outside of the Bible, these words are used to describe a statue. I've never seen Abraham Lincoln, but I have an idea of what he was like because I've seen his statue. In a sense, humanity is set up to be like God's statues on earth, to be a visible reflection not of what he looks like, but of who he is. Added to that, in Genesis 3, it says that Adam had a son in his own image and likeness. The very same words, just a few chapters away. It's crazy, isn't it? It it, It means it has to do with something about family resemblance. We were made to reflect and resemble God. Not what He looks like, but who He is. To reflect and resemble God. Not what He looks like, but who He is. My dad is a baseball card salesman. And so what I found out is that a card's value is based on whose image it bears. A card's value is based on whose image it bears. We were made to reflect and resemble who God is. That's how much value has been placed on our lives. That's our place in all of creation. Every human life is made with infinite value and incredible dignity. Every human life is precious. One of Lisa and I's favorite national parks has these majestic, unique rock formations called arches. We've been there a few times. It's called Arches National Park. But the last time we went, one of the most famous arches in the park had crumbled to the ground. I was so sad. There was this big write-up about it. But what about the dozens of people who are crumbling to the ground every week in our streets? Does that bother us? We've got to cry out. We've got to pray together got to seek change because we were created with great value. Every life is precious. And that's related to the second affirmation of this passage. We were also created with great purpose. And this is found in verse 28. We read. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living living thing that moves on the earth. The purpose we see here flows out of being made in the image of God. As God's image bearers, we reflect and resemble who God is. So humankind is given the purpose to function as God's representatives on earth. In other words, humanity is set up to rule over creation on God's behalf. One word I kept coming across is that humans are God's vice regents. We don't really use that word. Maybe Canada does. But essentially, what it means is that God is the big king and humans are the little kings and queens. We are to rule creation under him 
with this delegated authority. It's like growing up when my parents would have my oldest brother watch over my other brother and I. He was to represent their wishes, how they themselves would run the house and care for us under their parental authority. He was their representative. But unfortunately, humankind has a history of using this authority not to run the house as God would, to care for it and steward it, but as an excuse to do whatever we want with it. However, it serves our purposes, not His. You know, I feel like a lot of the green movement is based on fear. And marketers just took that raw emotion and made millions off of it. But we are, we are to care for the good of creation. Not out of fear, but out of love. As one scholar noted, God was careful how he made this earth. We must not be careless about how we take care of it. Care for the earth is not trendy. It's ancient. As a fad, it will fade. But fads don't dictate how we live our lives anyway. God's Word does. Part of our purpose as God's representatives is also to multiply and rule on His behalf in all parts of creation. That's essentially what it means to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Throughout history, this has been used exclusively as a mandate to make babies. And while child-rearing is certainly included, when we track the way this is developed in Scripture, we see that the heart of it is simply to spread God's goodness and glory throughout the earth. That's the core of what it means to be God's representatives. Only as we continue on in Scripture, we see that humans failed time and time again as God's image-bearing representatives. Over and over again, we set ourselves at odds with His design. In the Garden of Eden, humanity made a declaration to God, I don't want to rule under you. I want to rule my life instead of you. And that is called the fall, where, where sin entered the world. And that pattern continues to be repeated in the Old Testament and in our lives. At the fall, the value of being made in the image of God was not lost. It continues to be reaffirmed. It's always there. It's unchanging. But the ability to live in light of it is lost. But then Jesus comes. And Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. And 2 Corinthians 4.4 refers to the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus perfectly lived as God's representative that through faith in His death and resurrection we might have the power to live as God's renewed representatives once again. Listen to Colossians 3.10. Put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. All of Christ's followers are God's renewed representatives in our homes in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces and classrooms. We are God's representatives. And in this area, this corner of the earth that's been entrusted to us, we are God's representatives to spread His goodness and glory through the transformational power of the gospel. And part of the way we are seeking to spread 
God's goodness and glory in this area is by getting involved with Chase School just a few blocks away. I brought a, a sign up today. And so if you are serious about getting involved with this ministry, please come and find me. We are looking for a few people who are ready to be committed to this ministry to spearhead what we pray will be a real, life-giving gospel presence in this area. We are God's representatives. And when we live like this, we will be doing what we were made to do from the very beginning. We were created with great purpose. The third and final affirmation of this passage is found in verses 29 through 31. And that is this. We were created with great care. We were created with great care. Let's read verses 29 through 31. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. We hear these verses, and what is so striking is God's personal care for humankind. At the very end of this passage, God looks at it all and He says, This is very good. This is His good design. And humans are the special recipients of His goodness. He gives them all the food they would ever need. He perfectly provides for them. He gives them a perfect environment, tailor-made for them to flourish. Throughout this whole passage, God is the one doing all the giving and all the blessing. And humans are simply on the receiving end. God is the one serving their needs. In contrast, once again, other creation accounts of that day held that humans were made to provide the gods with food and to relieve them of manual labor. In one popular account, the lesser gods were beginning to complain to the higher gods about digging a canal. And so the higher gods came up with the solution to make human beings to kind of alleviate these lesser gods of that hard work. It was to provide food and to reduce manual labor. But this passage makes clear that we were not made to meet the needs of the gods, of the one true God. We were made to be the recipients of the one true God's goodness. And this contrast not only plays out way back then, it also plays out in our day and age. You see, the false gods of our day keep us trapped on a treadmill of constantly meeting their needs. We've got to meet the needs of living for money. We've got to meet the needs of living for power and pleasure. We've got to meet the needs of living for success. We've got to meet the needs of people's opinions and expectations. But it's never enough and there's always more, so it keeps us running and running and running and doing and doing and doing. But God can set us free. The final verses of Genesis 1 give us a picture of the mighty God of all creation who spoke the universe into existence with a word and then caring for our needs. That's what God is like. And the ultimate proof of that is Jesus Christ 
who came not to be served, but to serve, who stooped down, suffered, and died, and rose again to meet our greatest need of all, salvation. Salvation by faith in Him who loved us and gave His life for us. That is how we can be free. We come to Him not to meet His needs, but humbly acknowledging our own neediness, our own emptiness, our own inability to erase our sin and overcome our sin. The God of the universe stoops down and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We are made to be recipients of His goodness, of His personal care, and of His perfect provision. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We were created with great care. This is our origin story. Not fiction, but true. This is how we make sense of who we are and who others are. We were created with great value. We were created with great purpose. And we were created with great care. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for telling us who we are. And I pray, Lord, that in the midst of this world with the confusing and competing messages we often hear, that you would remind us of the truth of who we are and who others are. Lord, I pray that in the midst of this we would embrace our identity in you and that we would grow as your representatives here on earth. Lord, empower us to live into this more. Empower us to embrace this in our lives and to empower us to give you the praise because of it. We were made by you, through you, and for you. We thank you in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior.